Ramble. My dog Mango has been with me through some really crazy times in life. I mean, she's been with us for the past 10 years. If you guys don't know, Mango is my little French bulldog with half hair. Okay, she's fuzzy only half the time. And she is literally the glue of my family. I have quite literally named an entire podcast and a YouTube channel from my dog Mango. She is the reason that these channels exist. But three years ago, Mango was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease and she was always at risk of excessive bleeding. Her fur was falling out in clumps. It was it was a pretty stressful time in my life. I was constantly emotional about Mango being in pain and then I would be, get so stressed out every time I started going over the vet bills. Every time we took her to the vet, it was like thousands of dollars because her condition was so difficult to treat. And I am just so thankful that we had savings to cover it. I wish I had known about Spot Pet a few years back. It would have just eased so much of that stress. Our partner, Spot Pet Insurance, is here to share a message today on how they are a secret weapon against the unexpected. Because with Spot Pet Insurance, you can get up to 90% cash back on eligible vet bills. Our dogs are always there for us during our hardest times, and we need to be there for them too. Go to spotpet.com today and get a quote instantly. Visit spotpet.com. Paid ad from Spot Pet Insurance. Waiting periods, annual deductibles, coinsurance, benefit limits, and exclusions may apply. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample policy. Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Bada bing, bada boom. A sinking car will be fully submerged within 30 to 120 seconds. So you have essentially two minutes, if you're lucky, to get out of that submerged car. And it's going to be terrifying. Every second of it is going to be like life or death. The minute that your car hits that water, the front of your car is going to start to nosedive straight down into the river, the ocean, wherever you may be. The front of the car is typically heavier, so it starts slowly sinking and bringing in more water. Now, this is what some professionals have advised you to do if you're in these types of situations. Roll down the windows as fast as you can. You're about to hit that water, roll down the window. You're in the water, roll down the window. Because once you're fully submerged, it's going to be nearly impossible to open your car door. And if your car windows stop working, then you're going to be trapped inside the car with zero escape. You're going to drown to death inside the car. So roll down your windows because the power to operate the windows is only going to last so long. You have a very short Mm. window of opportunity before all the electrical systems are destroyed by the water. If you can't roll down the windows, you got to find something to break it with. Don't try and break the windshield. That is the thickest part of glass in the entire car. You got to use the side windows. Mm. Then you take off your seatbelt. You do not want to be restrained while you're trying to free yourself from drowning in a car. Help other people out in the car and then swim out of the car safely. It's going to be the easiest to swim out of the car when the water level is still below your car window that's open. Now, once there's water coming in through that open car window, you're going up against the water pressure. Water's pushing you down. You got to swim up against it. If you're not a strong swimmer, you might have to wait until the entire car sinks to the bottom and then wait for the water pressure to equalize before trying to swim up. Because even if the car is fully submerged, it's still sinking. So Mm. the water is pushing it down and you're trying to go up. Wow. You can still do it, but it's going to take a lot more energy and a lot more skill. Wherever you are in this process, you're going to want to use your feet to kick off the car to try and propel yourself towards the surface. But what if you wake up in a sinking car? 
What if you didn't even see yourself falling? What if you weren't ready? You weren't alert. You didn't have any of the time to do these things. And now the car is filling up with water and you're panicking. In the Han River in Seoul, South Korea, 33-year-old Min Jun was knocked unconscious. He violently wakes up by the cold. It's just so cold. And he notices he's in the driver's seat of his car and there is cold water splashing into his car. It's slowly filling up. His feet are fully submerged at this point and now it's like trying to reach his knees. He's freaking out. Like, what the hell is going on? He, he has no idea why he's in water. He starts panicking. He's looking out the window. All he sees is water. What the hell? His car is in the middle of the Han River sinking. How did he even get here? He tries to push open the car door. He pushes. It doesn't even budge. Something is blocking it. Or perhaps it's the water pressure that's high enough already. It won't move. He tries to slam his body up against the door to get it to open. It's not even moving a little bit. Not even a single inch. So he's like, okay, calm down. Think. We gotta think. He could hear his breathing ringing in his ears and he's panicking. Even if he gets out, then what? Be plunged into the dangerous river in the middle of October? I mean, surely he's going to quickly die. The currents are strong enough to drag him underneath the water. And if that doesn't happen, he's going to die of hypothermia pretty quickly because he's in the middle of the river. But if he stays in the car, he's going to drown. The car is going to slowly submerge and he's going to drown to death either way. So no, 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 no. He's got to get out. And he had wasted so much energy trying to get that car door open. The water is now up to his waist. He has to think clearly. He tries to open the windows. It doesn't work. It's broken. And he's thinking, okay, what do I do? What do I do? The window has a tiny hairline crack running through it. Minjun knew that this is the only way out, the only way to live, or at least have a shot at living. So he uses his elbow and he smashes it into the window once, twice, three times. The water is just coming up higher and higher, filling up the car, and it's splashing up against the car, trying to drag it down. I mean, the adrenaline is so high, he doesn't even feel how cold the water is anymore. He uses the weight of his body to smash into the window again, and it finally shatters. It breaks. He pushes out the glass shards. He takes one last breath, closes his eyes, and jumps out the window. And he plunges straight into the cold concrete. And he's like, what the hell? Why is this not water? He opens his eyes, and he looks around. His car was half submerged in water, but still resting on a piece of concrete that is now floating in the Han River. A giant piece of concrete the size of two football fields is now floating in the water. It does not belong there. It wasn't there two seconds ago. And behind him, Minjun sees what looks straight out of an apocalyptic movie. Floating on the concrete island is a bloodbath. People crawling out of their crushed cars, moaning for help. People in the water screaming, begging to be saved while they're getting swept away by the powerful currents. Other cars are fully sinking into the bottom of the deep river. A bus behind him is crushed to half its size. The bus is now coming up to his waist with blood just pouring out of it like someone stepped on a berry-flavored juice box. He could see blood-soaked hands like reaching out of the bus, trying to crawl out, and nobody was coming to help them. It would be up to the 49 people floating in the middle of the river to save each other. By the end, 32 people would be dead.
This is the case of the Songsu Bridge collapse in South Korea and how 32 people died without medical attention on a concrete floating island in the middle of the Han River while helicopters flew over and live-streamed the whole thing to news networks. We would like to thank today's sponsors who have made it possible for Rotten Mango to support Direct Relief, a humanitarian organization that is active in all 50 states and more than 80 countries with a mission to improve the health and lives of people affected by poverty or emergencies. This episode's partnerships have also made it possible to support Rotten Mango's growing team of dedicated researchers and translators. And we'd also like to thank you guys for your continued support as we work on our mission to be worthy advocates of these causes. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. We worked with our Korean researchers to help assist in the gathering of data for this case. But as always, with international cases, please let us know in the comments if there was anything miscommunicated, lost in translation, or just any additional information you would want us to know, leave it in the comments. And a quick note, many of the victims involved have wished to stay anonymous. So we're going to be assigning aliases for them. And um, with that being said, let's get into it. All the workers of the local convenience stores nearby, they knew this man. He was kind of an interesting middle-aged man. He worked by installing those LED lights on the outside of buildings. So he worked for a light installation company. And the ones that really watched him, or if they ever looked out the window and they saw him installing these lights, anytime he got a little bit high up on the ladder, his knees would start buckling. His whole body would start shaking. And then after work, he would walk into a convenience store and buy all the food that he was craving. Now, for years, there were ups and downs in his finances. On the times that he wasn't making a lot of money, he would still walk in and buy all the food that he was craving. There would be split moments where the convenience store owner would tell him exactly how much it was. And the middle-aged man would open his wallet. Let's say the food is $19. He only had $20 in his wallet. He would hand it over with a big smile on his face and tell him, thank you, you know, you got to eat and walk out. He did this even when he had more money. He ate everything that he was craving all the time. He never skimped out on food. And it's very interesting because the ones that had known him for years now, they knew that he had not always been like that. He didn't even work installing lights when he was younger. He was a police officer. It felt like this man had two lives. One from before and one from after the incident. Before, he was just another young cop in this police-issued van complaining about food prices going up. I mean, at this point, it's straight-up robbery for some kimbap. I mean, it's so chisai, which means annoyingly unfair, that I would just rather not even eat at this point. The rest of the other 10 police officers would chuckle, and the one driving, he turned up the volume to the music. Maybe if it had been any other day, they would have just continued the conversation about how the cost of living keeps going up, and police officers in South Korea, we're only getting paid like $30,000 a year. It's not fair. We're saving lives. But not today. Today was their day to celebrate. It's National Police Day. And the 11 Seoul Metropolitan Police Officers are heading in their bright blue van to receive awards for their exceptional performance. So they're, they're excited. They're not talking about kimbap prices today. They're having a blast. 
there was this slightly bittersweet undertone to it all because this was also the last day for one of the officers in the van, which sounds, I don't know, dramatic, right? But they're not just co-workers. I mean, these officers have been working together on the force for some of them months, some of them years, right? A lot of officers say, other than family, the only people I would trust with my own life are my partners on duty. If my partner is out there chasing a knife-wielding criminal, we're doing it together. If my partner is out there giving out parking tickets, we're doing it together. If my partner is receiving an award for exceptional performance, we're doing it together. This would be their last ride altogether. So they're turning up the volume to this very upbeat song. It's called Cocktail Love. It's honestly the last song that you would expect police officers to be jamming out to. It's a bit of contrast too with the rainy morning outside. And they're singing along while staring out the window and they're looking into the river, the Han River that they're crossing. And then boom, it hits them. What the hell was that? They turn down the music. And the driver says, it's nothing. It was just like a small stone. You know, sometimes the stones come up from the road. It hit the windshield. That was a big stone, I think, though, because that sound was loud. But now with the music turned off, their ears are alert. No, but what's that sound? The car gets quiet and they're trying to listen. And it's like this low, like, noise it almost kind of sounds like the beginning of thunder like a rumble almost it's it's a deep took noise it's like one that you would feel in your bones the officer driving the car officer lee he was gonna ask the group what they thought the strange deep noise was you know because it's clearly not normal but his officers start yelling from the back brake hit the brakes hit the brakes he looks up at the road ahead of him and the road ahead looks like it's rising. It looks like the road is getting taller out of nowhere. How is that even possible? How is it getting lifted? They're on a bridge. Is this some sort of like weird optical illusion or some sort of earthquake? And as quickly as the road ahead of them looked like it was growing taller, it just vanished completely. It disappeared. And then they felt this really odd, strange weightlessness in their stomach. Like their stomachs were just floating around inside of their bodies. And then, boom. Some of the officers screamed. Others felt everything go black. Most of them fainted. But one thing was for certain. The next time that they looked out the window, they were in the middle of the Han River. 21-year-old Officer Lee, the driver of the police van, he opened up the driver's side door, and there was so much noise when he opened that door. Emergency sirens getting closer and closer. People are screaming, screaming for help, help. He has to help. So he's forcing his trembling legs to try and move out the car because he's shaken up. It feels like a war zone. It feels like there's bullets just flying towards them from all different angles. And now that he's out of the car, he realizes it's not bullets. It's stone. Like thousands of pieces of gravel are just plummeting from the sky, landing on him, near him, clinking off the police van into the water, creating these giant splashes. He could barely keep his eyes open from all that dust. And then the cold wind, not just the wind of the Han River, but the helicopters. There's helicopters just circling around and he's trying to squint and look up and 66 feet above him, seven stories above him, is the bridge that he had been driving across just moments ago. It had a giant section just ripped from it in the middle. It's like someone punched down into the bridge, taking a giant piece of slab down to the Han River. 
he could see peeking over the bridge, like the edge of the bridge up there, 66 feet above him, are people, firefighters, looking terrified. He's like, why do they look so terrified? He turns his eyes back down and turns around in a full circle. They were on a sinking island. A piece of concrete, the slab from the bridge that was missing, was now floating in the Han River, about to sink at any moment. Lee turns to his right. There's people screaming from inside the water. They're being swept away by the current. He turns to his left. There is blood seeping into the concrete, turning it fully dark red. He looks up and he sees a bus full of people upside down and the bus is completely squashed. He could see long strands of hair just soaked in blood peeking out from the bus windows. Backpacks were ripped apart and loose shreds of homework were just sitting in pools of thick blood. The next stop for this bus would have been Muhak Girls High School. In Korea, most high schools don't start class until 8, 10 a.m. But technically, if you're not in your seat by 7.50 a.m., you're considered late. So most students, they try to shuffle into the classrooms by, I don't know, 7.30 a.m., right? So you have some time to settle down, set up your little station, catch up with your friends, finish eating the breakfast that you bought at the convenience store. Apparently, they call it reading time. But most students, they do not sit calmly and read a book ready for the day to start. They're running around from going from class to class, treating it like a recess, doing their hair, fixing their makeup, playing with their like phones. They're doing everything. They're running, taking pictures, eating snacks. And at Muhak Girls High School, most of the students were really good about getting to class on time. Except Friday, October 21st. The teachers of Muak Girls High School walk into their classrooms and they look around. There's eight empty seats. No one had called ahead of time. Usually if students are sick, the parents will call. If students are late, parents will call. Eight un unexcused lateness, tardiness, absence. Strange, you know, like one or two, they're used to that maybe. But eight, they look out the window and it's just rain droplets pouring down. Okay, maybe they're late from the rain, but still, I mean, it rains all the time. They're on time. We're not sure how everyone at the school found out. Like maybe a teacher ran out of the staff room yelling at everyone like, turn on the TVs. Maybe a student had heard about it and ran into the school saying, did you guys see what happened? But very quickly during homeroom period, Muak Girls High School students found out that the bridge leading straight to their school that most of their classmates and friends took every single morning to get to class had collapsed. And those eight empty chairs belonging to their friends, they may never be filled again. Every single channel on TV, every radio station was playing the same thing. A shocking incident has occurred this morning. During a severe traffic jam during rush hour, the Songsu Bridge has collapsed. Nearly 100 feet of the road collapsed and broke off into the Han River, taking down multiple vehicles with it. Eventually, the police, fire department, and soldiers on base nearby would be dispatched to this collapsed bridge. In total, 1,500 people were mobilized to the scene. Some of the news reports started sharing suspicions that North Korea was attacking South Korea, that they had bombed the bridge, causing it to collapse. It was reported by world leaders that there's a genuine risk of war that would involve chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. The Nonpartisan Congressional Research Service estimates that North Korea could rain down on Seoul with 10,000 rockets per minute, killing 300,000 South Koreans in a single day, if they wanted to. 
Experts estimate that in the long run, if North Korea attacks South Korea, millions could die from this type of escalation. So people are thinking, maybe this is just the beginning. Maybe this is the work of a North Korean rocket. While news stations are on high alert about anything regarding North Korea, all the students at the all-girls high school are just terrified. They're so anxious that their friends are not showing up to class. And that bridge being the main method of transportation for many of them, it's making them feel panicked. They try to find out if someone released a list of names. Or what about the vehicles that were crashed? Wait, what car does Yuna's dad drive again? What, what about Sarah? They said it's only a few vehicles, right? Like, what are the odds that they were on that section of the bridge? Like, we need to calm down, right? It's going to be okay. They had no answers. All they could do was wait, holding on to their breath, sitting at their seats, not able to focus on any of their schoolwork. And slowly, more reports came out about the collapse, including the fact that public bus, bus number 16, was on the bridge when it went down. Bus number 16 was packed like sardines. This is rush hour in South Korea. There are students with their backpacks being squished by men in suits with their briefcases, security guards heading to work trying to close their shoulders in to make room for more people. Bus number 16 had made it across the part of the bridge that collapsed, according to the news, by half of its length. So the, the part of the bridge that collapsed went down and bus number 16, half of the bus, was on the part that did not collapse. And the other half of the bus was suspended in the air. That's even worse. Yeah. There was no concrete, no ground supporting the back half of the bus. It was essentially dangling. The driver of the bus, according to witness statements, tried to accelerate to move the rest of the bus to the part of the bridge that hadn't collapsed, move it to safety. But it was nearly an impossible feat. A standard city bus weighs as much as 44,000 pounds with all the passengers squished inside. That is the weight of a whale shark. Imagine a whale shark that is half off of a bridge. How would you stop it from falling? The bus driver, he tried his best to not let the bus fall, but there's just nothing you can do. You cannot go up against physics like that. He tried. Witnesses stated that he accelerated all the way until the rear wheel of the bus hit the edge of the broken bridge, but it got caught on the jagged stone. Oh my gosh. The bus driver accelerated with everything he had, but because the rear wheels were caught, it caused the entire body of the bus to go up. The bus, to a degree, was now vertical because he's accelerating so much and the back wheel is getting caught. It was erecting itself up on the middle of the bridge. Drivers on the bridge were staring in horror because they knew that there was nothing that they could do to help. The bus went up and then fell back into the hole. The bus made almost a semicircle as it fell all the way down 66 feet and crashed onto the concrete slab that had broken off into the river. The bus was in the worst condition because the other vehicles that had fallen with the slab, there was a crash, they were injured, there were a lot of serious injuries, but because... They didn't fall yeah. on to the crash. The impact was not as hard. Yeah. Bus number 16 was crushed like an aluminum soda can. Bus number 16 was the bus that many of the all-girls high school kids took to get to school. The next stop on the bus right after they crossed the bridge would have been Muhak Girls High School.
Our apartment lease in New York City is almost up, which means it's time for that hunt for the perfect apartment again. And I'm sure everyone can agree to this, but when your apartment takes off all of the boxes, you feel so much happier being home. You look forward to going home, but it is hard. It is hard finding the perfect place, especially in a place like New York. For us, we need to have an in-unit washer and dryer. That is like a non-negotiable. We need to have hardwood floors because of my allergies. And we love any unit facing Southwest. That is golden hour prime time. And since we're not in New York City right now, we've been using Apartments.com to help us find our new home. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place with powerful search tools to help find a rental listing that checks all of your specific unique boxes. I love that there's a ton of 3D virtual tours which have come in honestly so handy for us because we're constantly traveling these days. It saves us so much time and money and it's really helpful for if you're moving to a new city. Maybe you're moving to the next town over. Saves you so much time. My favorite feature though is the amenity filters. So you can make sure your possible future home has all of the amenities you need. Like I said, in-unit washer and dryer. But you can even search for units with a balcony so you can enjoy a nice sunrise with your coffee. And once you find a new place that you like, you can even favorite them so they're all neatly organized. I get so excited to apartment hunt every night with my fiance. So visit apartments.com, the place to find a place. To be completely transparent with you, I am still at that stage in my life where if you tell me, hey, something's gonna make you feel better or something's gonna make your skin clear, I'll probably be like, give me the clear skin. But growing up is realizing that you can have both and I have made it a habit to implement things in my life that let me have both. Did you know that your gut health really impacts your skin health? And not just skin, apparently your gut health can impact your immune system, your energy levels, even your mental health. That is why I've now added my favorite probiotic from Symbiotica to my morning routine. It sounds weird to say, but Symbiotica's health supplements are now part of my skincare routine almost. If you guys don't know, Symbiotica is a supplement company that only uses clean premium ingredients in its formulas. No seed oils, no fillers, no additives, no natural flavors, and no artificial ingredients. Symbiotica also formulates all of their supplements for optimal absorption. For example, I love their vitamin C so much, which is also really good for your skin. If you didn't know, everybody loves it. I mean, it's probably the most popular vitamin C amongst all of my friends and family. We love Symbiotica. Their vitamin C is formulated with liposomal technology, which basically means the vitamin C is delivered to the part of your digestive tract where it can be optimally absorbed. And I just love throwing one in my bag on the go, especially when I'm traveling. Symbiotica makes it so easy to stick to a routine, not just because of their supplements being great and tasting great and making me feel great, but also because they get delivered monthly. That means I never have to worry about refilling my supplements or running out and it's just so easy to pause a delivery or add a new supplement to my delivery. With Symbiotica, I've really noticed an improvement in my skin health, but also I feel like I have more energy and mental clarity. Symbiotica has countless high quality supplements that you can choose from. Sleep supplements, cognitive supplements, anti-aging supplements. If you're not sure which supplements would be best for your specific needs, you can do a short quiz on Symbiotica's website and they'll recommend what you could benefit from. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN.
many families would later bring up the butterfly effect. And side note, just to clarify, I am only bringing up these types of questions and even the butterfly effect because a lot of the families of the victims were talking about it and it just became a topic of discussion amongst a lot of news networks at the time. I personally do not think any member of any victim's family should feel this way because then it just, it gets really easy to place blame on ourselves, which I just don't agree with. A lot of families stated that they kept thinking, what if I just made my family members a little late that day? By five seconds? Could that have changed things? Like, what if I forced them to wake up earlier? Would that have made things different? I was thinking, they're so tired, maybe I should let them sleep in, but what if I had just woken them up on time? Would they be coming home tonight? They just kept blaming themselves and thinking about the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect is the idea that small, seemingly trivial, non-consequential events or decisions ultimately result in something with a much larger consequence. So a dramatic example would be a small butterfly flaps its wings in South Korea and somehow this tiny change in air pressure uh, and wind would somehow lead to another tiny, tiny little event where someone kind of slaps their hair around like this. That leads to another tiny, tiny event and another, and another, and then it gradually snowballs, and it would eventually cause a tornado in New York. Or the idea that if you had a pile of sand, you think, okay, if I just remove a single grain of sand from this giant pile, it seems so trivial, who's going to miss that tiny grain of sand? Who's going to even know that I took a tiny grain of sand? But it would change the entire pile of sand. The butterfly effect is often referenced in time travel movies and shows because the idea that you can go back into time and you do something that you believe won't do anything and it changes the future forever. One of the most famous classics is about a man who travels back 65 million years to shoot a dinosaur. He's like, this is my dream to kill a T-Rex. Now, according to history, the T-Rex was going to die anyway that day because a fallen tree would land on it, killing it but he's obsessed. He's obsessed with wanting to kill this T-Rex. So he time travels and the tour guide takes him there. Time travel tour guide. But when he goes up to shoot the T-Rex, the man starts getting scared. The T-Rex is so big. Like what if the bullet doesn't kill him and it just makes him angry and then the T-Rex is going to kill me. He's frozen in fear. The guide has to step off the path because they have a time travel path. Step off the path to shoot the T-Rex so that it won't kill them. They time travel back to the future and Everything has changed. Language is no longer the same. An evil dictator is now in power and it just doesn't make sense. The T-Rex was going to die that day anyway from a fallen tree. Why does it matter if it was shot or not? It's dead. Ultimately, the T-Rex was going to die. They look down and they see a crushed butterfly stuck to their boot. And the story shows how just them stepping off the path, stepping on a butterfly, changes history forever. It's terrifying on its own if you think about it too long, but a lot of parents of the victims in this story, they just kept bringing up the butterfly effect. They said they kept asking themselves, could things have played out differently somehow? Maybe I would have asked if they wanted a coffee, and if they drank a coffee before they headed out, then they wouldn't have been on that part of the bridge. Or maybe I could have made them wake up five minutes earlier. Or maybe the night before I made them sleep five minutes earlier. Or maybe I was going to shower, but I could have just let them shower first. Or what if they wore a specific tennis shoe that takes a few extra seconds longer to tie? Could that have changed the outcome of things? Yuna had stayed up late at night drawing again. She was a junior at the Muha Girls High School. And after all of her studies, her one guilty pleasure at night was to just draw. 
The next morning, Friday morning, she woke up a teeny tiny bit later than usual. I mean, at this rate, she was going to miss her bus to school. And Yuna's dad offered her, hey, I'm going to drive to work. The bus stop is on the way. Get in the car. I'm going to drop you off at the bus stop. Yuna did not even respond to him. She grabbed her backpack, got in his car, and she crossed her arms and stared out the window. Yuna's dad is trying to make eye contact with his daughter to see if there was an opening for conversation, but nothing. She refused to look at him, and she just stared out the window. It was kind of a cold war. Yuna's dad had spanked her a few days ago, and you know, she's a high schooler, so they're having like a, it's very normal. It seemed like neither of them wanted to apologize first, so the whole drive all the way to the bus stop, they don't say a single word to each other. When he parks the car, he turns to his daughter, but she's already out the door and she's saying, which means, I'll see you at home later. And she closes the door and she walks off to the bus stop. And when she gets there, the bus is not there and she's wondering, did I miss the bus? Oh man, when is the next one going to get here? And she watches as her dad drives off. Another student from the same school, Wuhak Girls High School, was trying to make it to that same bus stop. She was a senior, though. Her name is Sarah, and she had overslept. She stayed up studying for the college entrance exam, like this girl had not known a good night's rest in a really long time. She barely washed her face, barely brushed her teeth by the time that she's running out the front door with her backpack thrown over one shoulder. Her mom's telling her, be careful! And she's running as fast as she can, trying to not get caught behind all these... Very sweet, very kind, but incredibly slow-walking elderly people. Sorry, sorry, excuse me, excuse me. She could see the bus stop at this point, and she sees the bus that she's supposed to be on. This is the last one that she could take in order to not be late for school. Is stopped at the bus stop, letting passengers on. So she's screaming, running, waving her arms. Wait, don't leave, please. I'm coming, I'm coming. Only one of the two students from the Muhak Girls High School would be alive by the end of the day. Snow globes are a little sadistic if you think about it. Like there's a cute family inside of this clear sphere and you see the family and their dog and their little house in the back and you pick it up and you shake it with everything you have and then you just excitedly watch as they have to face, as they have to face this cold blizzard all by themselves. We are genuinely the makers of chaos. The 11 police officers who all managed to survive the collapse, they felt like they were in a snow globe. They had been living their lives to the best of their abilities, following the laws, starting their own families, and some sadistic unknown person had come by and violently shaked up their world. And even now, they feel like they're in a snow globe. 66 feet under the bridge in the middle of the Han River, they could see, they could hear the helicopters above them. They could see the fire trucks parked at the top of the bridge above them, rescuers' heads just poking over the edge, staring at them. They could hear them barking all sorts of orders over the megaphones. We need a port here. Get the equipment down here. Someone mobilize the cruise ships. But being police officers, they knew nobody was prepared for anything like this. They knew that they didn't have time to wait for any of that. They could hear people screaming, help me, help me. They all start whipping around to try and find out who's screaming, who needs help most urgently. One of the officers points into the water. There are two people being swept away by the current. They're gonna die. The Han River is known to have really strong currents to the point that it's advised that you only swim in the designated beach areas. It would take just a moment for them to disappear with the current and just be dragged under the water. The rain is making it even harder for the officers to see, but they cannot miss these tiny two dots in the water because right next to them is their half-submerged car going down. 
When the bridge collapsed and all hell broke loose, the silver car landed directly in the water instead of on the concrete island. Two teachers that were in the car managed to escape the quickly sinking vehicle, but now they're at risk of drowning unless someone saves them. So the officers are screaming, get the tire. The officers didn't even think about what they're doing. They're going into full autopilot mode. They're trained to act in crisis situations. So that's exactly what they're doing. They're focused. Get the tire. They work in unison to grab the spare tire, connect it to a rope, and they hurl it into the river. Grab the tire. The tire did not reach the teachers. It's not working. They're only getting further away. They're getting dragged by the current. So two of the officers, they look at each other, they look at the others, and without hesitation or saying a single word, they dive into the cold water. They manage to reach the two teachers and bring them back to the concrete island. The two teachers, Teacher Kim and Teacher Park, soaking wet, their hair is sticking to their foreheads. They're grabbing onto the wet police officers. There's two more teachers in the car. Please, they're, they're our coworkers. We carpooled with them for the past two years. You need to go get them. The other two teachers would never make it back to their classrooms. And then the cries became unbearable. All the police officers could hear were people begging to be saved, to be helped. Some were screaming in a frantic, high-pitched voice. Others were moaning as if they had stacks of bricks on top of them. And this is all the air they can muster out. The officers look over at the bus that crashed down next to them and it's flipped upside down and in the impact of the crash, of it crashing onto this concrete island, it had been completely squashed. If you stood next to the bus now, it would come back to your waist. That's how tall it was. The bus was flipped upside down, but it's crushed to the point where certain parts of the bus, the floor is touching the ceiling of the bus. It's like if someone stepped on an aluminum soda can, completely crushing it, pancaking it. There were bus chairs popping out of the bus, just scattered outside. Parts of the metal walls of the bus had popped off and they're crumbled on the side of the bus. The glass windows are all broken. S school bags, lunch boxes of students are protruding out of the bus, soaked in liquid. In liquid. It, it was blood. 21-year-old Officer Lee remembered looking at the bus, seeing the blood flowing out like a squash juice, juice can. And he said, there were layers of people on top of people. It was literally hell on earth. But he has to snap out of it. Voices are calling at him to help. He goes back into focus mode, trying not to think about who these people are, what's going on, where everybody was headed, the fact that two seconds ago he was headed to receive an award. He's not thinking about his family. He's thinking about saving lives, and that is it. The situation was being broadcasted live in all news stations in South Korea by the helicopter circling above. The people trapped in the collapse were really in their own snow globe. The whole nation is watching them without any single way to help. All the police officers would be seen on the news stations on the sinking island wearing nothing but their underwear. But it's only 40 degrees outside. Officer Lee and the other officers start pulling people out as gently as possible from this crushed bus. And all the other officers that are assisting, they, they would pull a person out, a middle-aged man, suit covered in blood, students in uniform covered in blood. They would look at the officers and they would say, thank you, I'm so cold. And with each person they pulled out of the wreckage, the officers would just start shedding articles of their clothes. Every, sing every single person that they rescued out of the bus told them, I'm so cold. And they're shivering. 
And the officers knew that that is a dangerous combination. So blood loss causes your core body temperature to fall. It can actually lead to hypothermia and death. Normal body temperatures are at 98.6, but when it falls below 95 degrees Fahrenheit, you're at risk of your body shutting down. Hypothermia can lead to complete failure of your heart by causing an irregular heartbeat, respiratory systems go down, and eventually that leads to death. And a lot of these people being pulled out of the bus are showing signs of hypothermia. Yeah, it's only 40 degrees outside, but from blood loss, they're becoming hypothermic. Not to mention, it's the end of October before 8 a.m. Even just being outside would have been chilly in South Korea. But on the Han River, those current, those winds, it likely feels much colder. And it's raining. Officer Lee would take off his police jacket and give it to the first person he pulled out. Then he ripped off his shirt, gave it to the next person. Then his pants. He pulled another person out of the bus, a student. They said, I'm so cold. And he looked down. He has no more clothes. He's in just his underwear. And he's thinking quick on his feet. He runs to the police van and he starts ripping the car seat covers to take off so that he can provide some sort of warmth. And when it finally rips off the seat, he runs towards the student he just pulled out and he said, I got it here, take the... The student was dead. The officers had to keep going though, even though it just started to feel pointless and painful. They rushed to get everybody out of the bus and cover them with car seat covers. They would ask the person they just pulled out, Ajashi, are you okay? Do you need help right now? Is this warm enough? Here, take the car seat cover. No, 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 thank you, thank you so much. Go save the others, go. The officers would turn around, go back into the bloody bus, drag another person out and place them right down next to the Ajashi, who was now dead. In another instance, Officer Lee pulled out a man from the bus. He was covered in blood, badly injured. He's still actively bleeding. And like the others, he desperately needs medical attention. I mean, this is life or death. Officer Lee sits him down and he's reassuring him, like, just hold on tight, okay, Ajashi? The rescue boats are coming. They're going to be here very, very soon. Just stay awake. The officer Lee looks up out into the river to see where the rescue boats are, how far in the distance they are, and he starts smiling because he can see them speeding towards the concrete island, and this is good. And he looks down. The man is dead. It felt like every time they rescued someone, they would turn around to help someone else, and the person they just rescued would be dead. They were alive two seconds ago, and now they're dead. It would take 30 minutes for the rescue boats to arrive. Rescue operations began, and bodies were carried onto boats on stretchers. Helicopters used rescue bags to now lift dead bodies. Rescue teams took way too long. When they first heard the bridge collapse, most of them made their way onto the bridge to the giant hole in the center. But what the hell are you going to do from there? So they wasted a lot of time driving back off the bridge, finding boats to get to them, to get to the site of the collapse by water this time. It was also later revealed that the call center employees briefly thought all the calls coming in about the collapse were prank calls. So they wasted even more time that they could have used to save lives by contacting the correct people like the Navy. 32 people died that day, nine being students and 17 more people were injured. It is widely believed that if the rescue boats had come sooner, more people would have been saved. And now with the rescue teams doing what they should have done 30 minutes ago, administering medical care. The 11 police officers, they sat down to catch their breath for the very first time since the collapse. 
Officer Lee, he's 21. He called his dad because he usually reports to his parents. And I believe he was still in a state of shock, though, because he just told his dad very bluntly everything that happened, like he was still on autopilot. I mean, he was so nonchalant. He stated, yeah, dad, Songsu Bridge collapsed and uh, I, got, I rescued some people out. So it's fine. Don't worry about it. And his dad responded, ah, ah, okay, mm, be safe. And he hung up. It did not register in that moment for Officer Lee's dad what his son was saying. After the line went dead, his dad stood there processing what his precious son had just told him. And he immediately called him back and he screamed into the phone, You're where? This is my favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day. I make myself some hot chocolate, I wrap up in my coziest blanket, and I become Detective June Parkett. I don't actually become a detective, but that's how I feel when I'm playing June's journey. You play as June, and the story starts with you flying from London to New York to investigate the suspicious murder of your sister and brother-in-law. But that's just the first in a very long line of suspicious murders. There's so many family secrets, twists, and you get to uncover all of these mysteries through a series of hidden objects games. Like you search for hidden letters or other objects that help you advance in the story. The storytelling in this game is impeccable. I mean, every detail is important. It stimulates you because you feel like a detective. The game takes June literally all around the world, from New York to Havana to Paris, and you get to meet all kinds of characters. I do not trust any new characters at this point because everybody seems to have a hidden motive. And as the story is progressing, you can learn about new characters as you collect bits of information to build your photo album. I also really love the dialogue in this game and just how immersive it is. There are some scenes where you really feel like you are Detective June. There's mystery, murder, danger, even romance. Sometimes it does get a little intense, so if I feel like taking a break from all the crazy plot twists, I go back to my little private island. Okay, it's not little, it's actually huge. It's called Orchid Island, and I get to decorate it in any way that I want. I have a waterfall on my island, and I'm currently making a train station route. There's just something so satisfying about getting to color code everything and make sure all the pieces fit. It's such a cozy yet thrilling game. It's almost as satisfying as puzzling the pieces of June's family's mysteries together because, listen, I'm telling you, my husband will definitely find me on the couch later today playing June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I don't really like doing chores around the house, I'm going to be honest with you, and I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time, and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized, and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging. And that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me, there is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for a job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees, even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters, especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. 
But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500. That's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try Audible free for 30 days. The Songsu Bridge was a symbol of economic power. The Songsu Bridge was built 15 years before it collapsed. I mean, it was part of the government's plan to modernize Seoul before the Summer Olympics were coming. Listen, don't even get me started on the Olympics and what the cities will do for Olympics. It was going to be held in Korea. They wanted Seoul to be cleaned up. The government spent $470 million to clean up the Han River, just clean it up from pollution. They said the Han is like clothing to the people of Seoul. So this is uh, Olympics 1990s? Yeah. Okay. Something to wear daily with pride, something to keep clean. Our fathers and their fathers would swim in the Han. It's our lifeblood. And yet, 32 people had just died because the bridge collapsed into the Han River. And there were signs that the bridge was going to go down. Ten hours before the bridge collapsed, a large gap had formed in one of the joints on the floor of the bridge. Like, you could look into it and see water. It was a large gap. Seoul City was alerted and they sent workers out there to lay a small iron plate on top of the gap so that nobody's tires would get stuck. And it wasn't even, yeah, I say small iron plate. It's not small. It was four feet by seven feet. They're trying to put a bandaid on a bridge? Literally, quite literally, they put a bandaid on the bridge. Slapped a bandaid on. This was 160 feet from the site of the collapse. They were going to repair the joint later, they said, but they postponed it due to bad weather, which is fine. But then why not just shut the bridge down until it's repaired? The next morning, about an hour and a half prior to the bridge collapsing, reports started coming in that people could hear these creaking noises coming from the bridge. You know those horror movies where they walk into those old haunted houses and it feels like the entire house is thundering? They said it sounded like that, but on a bridge, which can't be great. It sounds like a monster, like deep, low rumbles and creaking noises. It sounds like it's echoing, too, like something big is shifting. It sounds like thunder inside of the bridge. Seoul City said once again that they would check it out. But after the rain stopped, less than an hour later, the bridge collapsed. Over 30 people died and more were missing. Search teams consisting of 150 personnel were sent into the water to locate more bodies. Professional divers, the Navy, were all involved. They found the silver car with the two remaining teachers inside. They had drowned. And a little while later, searchers came across another fully submerged vehicle, a gray Hyundai, and the driver had not been able to escape from the submerged vehicle. He was also dead. After five days, they called off the search and no more bodies were found in that area of the Han River. 32 dead, 29 from the bus, 9 of them being students, and 3 that drowned. Muhak Girls' high school graduation was 4 months after this. Everyone showed up. I mean, even students who weren't graduating that year, 
parents of students, they all rallied to show support for eight students that would never be coming back. Many of the parents of the deceased brought in a single yellow tulip in memory of their children. Sarah brought one in too. The bus never waited for Sarah, the one that collapsed. And that is the only reason that she survived. She said, when I got on the next bus, the bus driver said that we couldn't go by this Hongsu bridge route, and I was surprised that we passed a different bridge to go to school. I ran into the classroom because I was late, and everyone was crying and hugging me. Everyone thought that something had happened to me because I hadn't come to school on time. They were playing the news. Yeah, my mom was so shocked later. But Yuna would not make it. Yuna's backpack was given to her father. It was recovered from inside the bus, and the fabric of the bag was caked in blood. When they handed him the backpack, his hands were shaking and he took it, he hugged the backpack, he fell to his knees on the floor and he started crying. Her favorite pens, journals, books, they were all in the backpack. And so was a letter that she had written for her dad. Remember how I said Yuna and her dad had a big fight a few days before she was killed? Most high schoolers, they like have a hatred for parents lecturing them. And in that car, her dad thought, wow, she's really mad at me. But you know, she's a high schooler. She didn't know how to apologize yet. And she didn't know when was the appropriate time to give her dad this letter because she felt like her dad was still mad at her. And so she saved that letter in her backpack. And it read, to my loving dad, dad, I can't hide my tears whenever I think about you. I know that your heart must hurt a hundred or a thousand more times when you spank me. Dad, don't think that you spanked me. Think of it as you were spanking the bad thing inside of me. And I really, really, really love you so much that it feels like my heart is going to explode. And I promise I'm just going to keep doing my best to make you proud. Appa fighting. And it was signed from Yuna, who loves her dad very much. Yuna's dad would die two years later from a serious health condition, but friends and family knew that he was in a rush to go tell Yuna that he received her letter. Another family, the Kangs, they lost their youngest son, Peter, in the collapse. When Mr. and Mrs. Kang heard that Peter was gone, that he was killed in the collapse, they fell to the ground and they were slamming their fists down, screaming, Peter, Peter. It was Peter's last day at work today. He had quit his job to focus on his studies of becoming an accountant, and his parents felt guilty. They couldn't help but think, had the collapse happened just a day later? Had Peter just quit a day earlier? The precious son would be alive today. Bridges are all about balance. To simplify it, when you have a force going down like gravity, the structure is going to go down. But when you have a force going up, and a force coming down, the structure can stay still if it's perfectly balanced. Now, there's a ton of different types of bridges, but all of them are about balancing forces. So take a beam bridge, for example. This is the cheapest, most simple type of bridge. So picture you get two stools, two chairs together. You place them a few feet apart and then place a wooden plank on top. There, you have a beam bridge. Now, let's say you want to make this beam bridge longer. You got to get creative because imagine you just push the chairs further apart and try to balance a longer wooden plank. Suddenly, the weight is going to feel heavier. It's going to start sloping down in the middle of that wooden plank when you put weight on it, right? It looks like it's going to snap in half. So what do you do? I mean, technically, you could add another chair in the middle. 
right, to balance out the weight. But that's not the cheapest or the easiest solution. You want to keep a good chair distance from each chair. So you don't want to spend so many chairs on this wooden plank, right? So what do you do? You add trusses to it. Imagine you have four toothpicks. You tape them up into a square. How easy would it be for you to take your finger, put it on the one corner of the square, push it down, and suddenly it's not a square anymore. It's a different shape. It's pretty easy, right? Because it's just going to bend. So what would be the best way to ensure that it doesn't tilt? Doesn't tilt? You You have more toothpicks. Oh, you add like two more in the middle across it. Just add one. Just add one diagonal. So now instead of a square, it looks like two triangles. Triangular support systems are great in bridge structures. I mean, they're great at holding their shape and not falling to pressure. It's very evenly distributed. And that's what a truss is. So this Hongsu bridge was a truss bridge that relied on these triangular support beams to hold it up. So there would be a pillar or a chair. And then um, the bridge part that the cars are driving on would be on top of these triangular support systems. Mm. And then another pillar and then more triangular support systems. And it means that the bridge can use way less pillars or chairs in our example. So for context, another bridge in South Korea would be categorized more as like a steel beam bridge, like a regular bridge. Each pillar or chair is about 110 feet apart. Mm -hmm. This Hongsu bridge, the pillars are almost 400 feet apart. Because the Songsu Bridge has these triangular support systems, which is typically a very smart and safe way to create good bridges. But that also means one of the most important parts of this bridge is gonna be the truss, the toothpick part. And it's not actually toothpicks, they're steel beams, but you get the idea. And more importantly, one of the most important things are gonna be how the toothpicks are attached to each other to create these triangular shapes, the joints. That's what's welded together. That's the welding part. So another analogy that's hopefully going to make it super easy to see how horrible this Hongsu bridge was constructed. If you have to tape two pieces of paper together, the cheapest way to do it would be what? You get four pieces of double-sided sticky tape, put them on each corner of one piece of tape, slap them on the corners of the piece of paper, slap the other paper on top. But let's say you want to spend a little more money, make it a little more secure. Maybe you tape the borders all four sides, and then slap the other piece of paper on top. Or if there are millions of lives on the line and it depends on these two pieces of paper being taped together for years through all sorts of weather conditions, the best thing that you can do would not just be tape the corners or the borders, but everything. Apply double-sided sticky tape to the entire page and then stick the other paper on top of it. Every part is essentially glued together. Mm. The Songsu bridge constructors were supposed to do that, But they just taped the borders and called it a day for the joints of these trusses, the triangular support systems. Why? To save money. What? To save time and money, a lot of money. They also didn't use high quality tape or welding materials, if you wanna, you know. It was actually stated that the bridge should have collapsed maybe like four years after it was built. It was that bad of construction. I mean, once they started investigating, people were surprised how this bridge even lasted this long. A Korean news station, NBC, went underwater to the scene of the accident of the concrete um, island, and they saw that the collapsed portion trusses, the triangular support systems, were held together, and the welding, they could literally unscrew bolts with their own hands. What? Other rusty parts of the bridge could just be ripped apart by a single hand. Like the cameraman had one camera in his hand and then the other hand was just ripping apart the bridge. Wow. 
Other times, there were parts of the bridge that needed nails to hold two things together. Very important, obviously. Now, the nail is supposed to be, let's say, a foot long, but the nail would only be three inches long. The part, the welding, the taped paper, it broke off during the collapse and it looked like it exploded from the weight. It straight up looks like a cardboard box that was torn open, like it was not done at all. Like I mentioned previously, Seoul was going through this rapid expansion phase. Government bids for construction projects would typically go to companies that promised the government that they had the fastest construction, which is great in theory because, yeah, we need more bridges to cross the Han River, but not great in theory because it inherently incentivized the company to be cheap and rush the construction at the expense of safety. People said that this was all part of South Korea's bali-bali culture. So bali-bali, it translates to like, hurry, hurry, quickly, quickly. But in the cultural context, bali-bali culture is kind of like rushing people to do things quickly or get something done at a faster pace. You will very often hear Koreans saying like, bali-bali, like, bali-gata-jo, like, hurry, hurry, everybody hurry. You go to Korea, you're standing on the side for two seconds too long. People are like, you got to hurry it up. It's similar to New York where everybody, no one has time for you to just stop in the middle of the sidewalk. Deliveries are fast. Internet speeds are fast. Everything is about bali-bali. The bridge was constructed by the company Tonga ENC. They promised the government that they would construct the bridge at half the cost of the other construction companies. They were contracted by the government to build almost a mile-long bridge across the Han River for $63 million, which is a lot, don't get me wrong, right? But a lot of major bridges, I mean, albeit some of them are a lot longer, but they can easily cost hundreds of millions and most of them closer to a billion dollars. Wow. So Tonga is charging $63 million, half of what the other contractors in Korea are asking the government for, which sounds alarming, doesn't it? But the citizens were like, you know what? Tonga is the best construction company in Korea right now. It's like the second largest contractor in South Korea at the time. And there's nothing we can do about it. It's the government choice. Wait, so they're, they asked for half and it's going to do it in double the speed? Yeah. They're like, we're going to do it quicker and for cheaper. So people thought, I mean, not that citizens had a choice. I'm not saying the citizens voted for this. The government gives it to whoever I guess they're sleeping in bed with, right? But the citizens felt a little bit reassured because the company had a lot of good publicity. The chairman of Tonga, Chairman Choi, was often hailed as some sort of construction hero. They called him the one who can accomplish the impossible, So if we give the government the benefit of the doubt, maybe they genuinely thought that Tonga had some sort of crazy system or skill to make things happen more efficiently and cheaper than other companies. After the collapse, Tonga made a statement and said, our company's warranty is over. The company's warranty for the bridge was five years. Afterwards, we cannot be held responsible for the accidents. We have no legal responsibility for this. It was so cold. There was nothing about the victims. It was just, this is legally not my fault. But Chairman Choi of Tonga definitely did not help the situation. He visited the scene of the collapse the day of, and he said, if Tonga is responsible, we will take full responsibility. But then his tone changed a few days later, and he said, in order to realize Tonga's moral responsibility as the constructor of the Songsu Bridge, with this incident, we are being reborn. Basically saying, hey guys, if you want us to, Because we constructed this bridge, morally, we're taking responsibility. Not legally, don't get it twisted, morally. But now we are reborn because we did something so great. Because we morally took responsibility. 
Eventually, an investigation was opened into the bridge's collapse. Chairman Choi's entire attitude changed, and he said, Look, I've been to Hongsu Bridge countless times, driven over it. Let me ask you a question. Would I have gone to Hongsu Bridge if I ordered it to be built cheaply and fast and without regard to safety? The company essentially argued that the bridge was fine for the past 15 years, so it's not their fault. If it was this bad, how would it have lasted 15 years? They started shifting the blame to Seoul City, the city government, for negligence on maintaining the bridge. They stated that for the responsibility of managing all the bridges over the Han River is done by the city of Seoul. The city is required to conduct safety inspections on facilities every single year. So does that mean they ran their test and their results said the bridge was fine? Were they not thorough in their testing? Did they even test the bridge? It was later revealed that after 15 years of its construction, the Songsu Bridge was never subjected to any detailed inspections. The government decided the bridge inspections would focus solely on older bridges. Another very dangerous thing to note, the government never restricted heavy vehicles from the bridge, nor did they try to limit them, which that's a huge pivotal part of ensuring the safety of bridges because bridges, yes, they're supposed to be safe. You have to make sure that they're not overloaded though because that could cause a collapse. There is no bridge that has unlimited weight limits. They're all built to only withstand a certain amount of weight. So not only did the government completely disregard the safe limit of the weight, they were doing more. The bridge had started off as a four-lane bridge, and it was still a four-lane bridge when it collapsed. But there were plans to get rid of the pedestrian lanes on both sides, redo the bridge, like the paint of the lanes, and make it five lanes. They were going to add on more load, more heavy cars, more buses, more transport vehicles, which would add more weight to this already exhausted, stressed structure. Side note, now it makes it seem like it's all the government's fault. But yeah, I think it's both their fault. Like both sides hold so much responsibility. Tonga's construction of this bridge is so well known internationally by engineers and even used as a case study for civil engineering students for the abysmal, terrifying, reckless construction of what honestly should not even be labeled a bridge. Allegedly, Tonga hired an expert in steel plate welding. So that's like the tape part I was telling you about. The joints, the most important part, right? Very important of a truss bridge. But when that expert insisted on, hey guys, we need to go a little bit slower because we need to inspect the steel plates thoroughly because this is the most important part. Mm -hmm. He was allegedly fired. Seoul prosecutors launched a criminal investigation into the bridge collapse. They were, in a way, investigating their own peers, and they did not like what they found. Seoul City had a contract with a third-party company and tasked them with handling the bridge maintenance and repairs. So let's call that B Corporation to keep things simple. B Corp had submitted a report to Seoul earlier that year. So this is in October. They did it early spring. They said, hey, the steel joints and the beams, yeah, they're compromised. It is in urgent need of repair. Which doesn't sound like a we'll get to it when we get to it type of problem, but Seoul did not do anything about it. Yeah, October 26, less than a week since the collapse, prosecutors arrested seven B Corp officials because prior to this urgent message sent to Seoul, the bridge had so many red flags that they didn't even inspect. Like, they let it get to this point. They could have flagged it earlier on, but they were too lazy to do daily reports. They never checked it out. And then finally, earlier that year, they finally checked it out. And they were like, ooh, no one should be on this bridge. It's going to collapse any second now. Four Seoul metropolitan government officials were arrested for disregarding that very urgent message sent earlier this year about the compromised beams. 
And just moving on, business as usual. Six Tonga construction officials were arrested for obvious reasons for the construction of the bridge. And there was debate on whether or not the mayor of Seoul, Mayor Lee, would also be arrested. But the then president of South Korea forced him to step down as mayor instead, which honestly just feels like a slap on the wrist. And in the end, they received sentences ranging from six months to three years in prison, which is, it's nothing, literally nothing. A few years later, Tonga Group, the parent company of Tonga Construction, would file for bankruptcy, and the government promised. They're like, things are going to change, guys. Things are going to be different from now on. We will care for civilian lives. Eight months after the bridge's collapse, the Sampung department store in Gangnam would collapse, killing 502 people, which we have covered in a previous episode. Eight months apart. And you can still go to the Songsu Bridge today. But it's not the same one from the collapse. Um, the government at first, they're wild. They told the public that the Songsu Bridge, like the collapse part, would be repaired and back up and running within three months. No. And they were going to like fix the welding on other parts of the bridge. There, there was huge public outcry. And it didn't seem like anyone would ever drive on that bridge, even if it was repaired. So the government decided to hire another company to fully dismantle the existing Songsu Bridge and build a completely new bridge in its place. The new bridge, which I believe did recycle some parts of the old bridge, it was built by Hyundai Engineering and Construction for $140 million. And side note, the victims, the deceased victims' families were compensated about $200,000 from Seoul, from fi- about $52,000 from Seoul City, and $60,000 from Tonga, reaching about $312,000 per victim, which, I mean, that's nothing. I believe the injured also received a bit of help in terms of medical bill assistance, but really nothing. The police officers who actively rescued people and were traumatized and were victims, they received nothing. No compensation, no mental health. The police officer we talked about from earlier, he said the only way he really learned to cope was life is short, so even if he doesn't have a lot of money in his pocket, now he eats whatever he wants. Because you don't know when your last meal is. Officer Lee, the 21-year-old, he struggles heavily with PTSD and survivor's guilt. He said, the most regrettable thing is I couldn't save more people. And then I lived, but they died. The news Hongsu Bridge would also take the life of another victim. The father of one of the students who died in the crash. He would always visit the new bridge when he thought of his daughter because there's pedestrian lanes. But it was just too hard. On the fourth anniversary of his daughter's death, he took his own life at the spot where the bus had fallen. His family said he blamed himself for not being able to protect his daughter. Many of the victims' families fainted when they were asked to come ID their loved ones in the beginning. One mother cried out, My baby, my baby, how can I live? How can I live on without my child? Please go look at my child and please somebody just wipe the blood off of him, please. Wipe the blood off of my baby. It hurts. One family member of a victim said, there are a lot of accidents with hundreds of victims. Sometimes the number 32 feels small. That's why I feel like our loved ones get forgotten sometimes. The number is not what matters though. What matters is there should not be a single person who ever dies like this again. I don't want the world to forget. And even though almost 30 years have passed, Every single year, banners are hung up near the Songsu Bridge Memorial, and they read, Even if the whole world forgets, Omma, Mom, 
will never forget. And that is the case of the Songsu Bridge collapse. What are your thoughts? If you listen to this Hampung department store, I mean, is it crazy knowing that this happened just eight months prior and that still occurred? What are your thoughts? Leave it in the comments and please stay safe. I will see you guys on Sunday for the next episode. Bye.